Chapter 5, Lessons of the Working Class Movement in Russia Applicable to Germany Let us now see how far all these lessons that can be learned from the Russian mass strikes are applicable to Germany. The social and political conditions, the history and status of the labor movement are widely different in Germany and Russia. At first sight, the inner law of the Russian mass strikes as sketched above may appear to be solely the product of specifically Russian conditions, which need not be taken into account by the German proletariat. But the political and the economic struggle in the Russian Revolution, there is a very close internal connection. Their unity becomes an actual fact in the period of mass strikes. But is not that simply a result of Russian absolutism? In a state in which every form and expression of the labor movement is forbidden, in which the simplest strike is a political crime, it must logically follow that every economic struggle will become a political one. Further, when contrariwise, the first outbreak of the political revolution is drawn after a general reckoning of the Russian working class with the employers, that is likewise a simple result of the circumstances that the Russian worker has hitherto had a very low standard of life, and has never yet engaged in a single economic struggle for an improvement of his condition. The proletariat in Russia has first, to a certain extent, to work their way out of these miserable conditions, and what wonder that they eagerly availed themselves, with the eagerness of youth, of the first means to that end, as soon as the revolution brought the first fresh breeze into the heavy air of absolutism. And finally, the stormy revolutionary course of the Russian mass strike as well as their preponderant spontaneousness. Elementary characters explained on the one hand by the political backwardness of Russia, by the necessity of first overthrowing the oriental despotism, and on the other hand, by the want of organization and of discipline of the Russian proletariat. In a country in which the working class has had 30 years' experience of political life, a strong social democratic party of 3 million members and a quarter of a million selected troops organized in trade unions, Neither the political struggle nor the mass strike can possibly assume the same stormy and elemental character as in a semi-barbarous state that has just made the leap from the middle into the modern bourgeois order. This is the current conception among those who would read the stage of maturity of the social conditions of a country from the text of the written laws. Let us examine the questions in their order. To begin with, it is going the wrong way about the matter to date the beginning of the economic struggle in Russia only from the outbreak of the revolution. As a matter of fact, the strikes and wage disputes in Russia proper were increasingly the order of the day since the 90s of the last century, and in Russian Poland even since the 80s, and had eventually won civic rights for the workers. Of course, they were frequently followed by brutal police measures, but nevertheless they were daily phenomena. For example, in both Warsaw and Lodz, as early as 1891, there was a considerable strike fund, and the enthusiasm for trade unionism in those years had even created that quote economic unquote illusion in Poland for a short time which a few years later prevailed in Petersburg and the rest of Russia. In the same way, there is a great deal of exaggeration in the notion that the proletarian in the Tsarist Empire had the standard of life of a pauper before the revolution. The layer of workers in large industries in the great towns who had been the most active and zealous in the economic as in the political struggle are, as regards the material conditions of life, on a scarcely lower plane than the corresponding layer of the German proletariat. And in some occupations, as high wages are to be met with in Russia as in Germany, and here and there even higher. As regards the length of the working day, the difference in the large-scale industries in the two countries is here and there insignificant. The notion of the presumed material and cultural condition of helotry of the Russian working class is similarly without justification in fact. This notion is contradicted, as a little reflection will show, by the facts of the revolution itself and the prominent part that was played therein by the proletariat. With paupers, no revolution this political maturity and of thought can be made, and the industrial workers of St. Petersburg and Warsaw, Moscow, and Odessa, who stand in the forefront of the struggle, are culturally and mentally much nearer to the West European type than is imagined by those who regard bourgeois parliamentarianism and methodical trade union practice as the indispensable, or even the only, school of culture for the proletariat. The modern large capitalist development of Russia and the intellectual influence, exerted for a decade and a half, of social democracy, which has encouraged and directed the economic struggle, have accomplished an important piece of cultural work without the outward guarantees of the bourgeois legal order. The contrast, however, grows less when, on the other hand, we look a little further into the actual standard of life in the German working class. The great political mass strikes in Russia have from the first aroused the widest layers of the proletariat and thrown them into a feverish economic struggle. But are there not in Germany whole unenlightened sections among the workers to which the warm light of the trade unions has hitherto scarcely penetrated? whose layers that up to the present have never attempted, or vainly attempted, to raise themselves out of their social helotry by means of daily wage struggles? Let us consider the poverty of the miners. Already in the quiet working day, and the cold atmosphere of the parliamentary monotony of Germany, as also in other countries, and even in the El Dorado of trade unionism, 
Great Britain, the wage struggle of the mine workers hardly ever expresses itself in any other way than by violent eruptions from time to time in mass strikes of typical elemental character. This only shows the antagonism between labor and capital is too sharp and violent to allow of its crumbling away in the form of a quiet, systematic, partial trade union struggles. The misery of the miners, with its eruptive soil, which even in quote, normal unquote times is a storm center of the greatest violence, must immediately explode in a violent economic socialist struggle with every great political mass action of the working class, with every violent sudden jerk that disturbs the momentary equilibrium of everyday social life. Let us take further the case of the poverty of the textile workers. Here also the bitter, and for the most part fruitless, outbreaks of the wage struggle that rage through Votland every few years give but a faint idea of the vehemence with which the great agglomerate mass of helots of trustified textile capital must explode during a political convulsion, during a powerful, daring mass action of the German proletariat. Again, let us take the poverty of the home workers, of the ready-made clothing workers, of the electricity workers, veritable storm centers in which violent struggles will become more certain to break out with every political atmospheric disturbance in Germany the less frequently the proletariat take up the struggle in tranquil times, and the more unsuccessfully they fight at any time, the more brutally will capital compel them to return, gnashing their teeth to the yoke of slavery. Now, however, whole great categories of the proletariat have to be taken into account, which, in the quote, normal unquote course of things in Germany, cannot possibly take part in a peaceful economic struggle for the improvement of their condition and cannot possibly avail themselves of the right of combination. First and foremost, we give the example of the glaring poverty of the railway and postal employees. For these government workers, there exist Russian conditions in the midst of the parliamentary constitutional state of Germany, that is to say, Russian conditions as they existed only before the revolution, during the untroubled splendor of absolutism. Already in the great October strike of 1905, the Russian railway men in the then formerly absolutist Russia were, as regards the economic and social freedom of their movement, head and shoulders above the Germans. The Russian railway and postal employees won the de facto right of combination in the storm, and if momentarily trial upon trial and victimization were the rule, they were powerless to affect the inner unity of workers. However, it would be an altogether false psychological reckoning if one were to assume, with the German reaction, that the slavish obedience of the German railway and postal employees will last forever, that it is a rock that nothing can wear away. When even the German trade union leaders had become accustomed to the existing conditions to such an extent that they, untroubled by an indifference almost without parallel in the whole of Europe, can survey with complete satisfaction the results of the trade union struggle in Germany, then the deep-seated, long-suppressed resentment of the uniform state slaves will inevitably find vent with a general rising of the industrial workers. And when the industrial vanguard of the proletariat, by means of mass strikes, grasp at new political rights or attempts to defend existing ones, the great army of railway and postal employees must of necessity bethink themselves of their own special disgrace, and at last rouse themselves for their liberation from the extra share of Russian absolutism that is specially reserved for them in Germany. The pedantic conception that would unfold great popular movements according to plan and recipe regards the acquisition of the right of combination for the railway workers as necessary before anyone will, quote, dare to think, unquote, of a mass strike in Germany. The actual natural course of events can only be the opposite of this. Only from a spontaneous, powerful mass strike action can the right of combination from the German railway workers, as well as for the postal employees, actually be born. And the problems, which in the existing conditions of Germany are insoluble, will suddenly find their solution under the influence and the pressure of a universal political mass action of the proletariat. And finally, the greatest and most important, the poverty of the land workers. If the British trade unions are composed exclusively of industrial workers, that is quite understandable in view of the special character of the British national economy, and of the unimportant part that agriculture plays on the whole in the economic life of Britain. In Germany, a trade union organization, be it ever so well constructed, if it comprises only industrial workers, and is inaccessible to the great army of land workers, will only give a weak, partial picture of the conditions of the proletariat. But again, it would be a fatal illusion to think that conditions in the country are unalterable and immovable, and that the indefatigable educational work of social democracy, and still more, the whole internal class politics of Germany, does not continually undermine the outward passivity of the agricultural workers, and that any great general class action of the German proletariat, for whatever object undertaken, may not also draw the rural proletariat into the conflict. Similarly, the picture of the alleged economic superiority of the German over the Russian proletariat is considerably altered when we look away from the tables of the industries and departments organized in trade unions, 
and bestow a look upon those great groups of the proletariat who are altogether outside the trade union struggle, or whose special economic condition does not allow for their being forced into the narrow framework of the daily guerrilla warfare of the trade unions. We see there one important sphere after another, in which the sharpening of antagonisms has the extreme point, in which inflammable material in abundance is heaped up, in which there is a great deal of, quote, Russian absolutism, unquote, in its most naked form, and in which economically the most elementary reckonings with capital have first to be made. In a general political mass strike of the proletariat, then, all these outstanding accounts would inevitably be presented to the prevailing system. An artificially arranged demonstration of the urban proletariat, taking place once, a mere mass strike action arising out of discipline, and directed by the conductor's baton of a party executive, could therefore lead the broad masses of the people cold and indifferent. But a powerful and reckless fighting action of the industrial proletariat, born of a revolutionary situation, must surely react upon the deeper lying layers, and ultimately draw all those into a stormy general economic struggle who, in normal times, stand aside from the daily trade union fight. But when we come back to the organized vanguard of the German industrial proletariat, on the other hand, and keep before our eyes the objects of the economic struggle that have been striven for by the Russian working class, we do not at all find that there is any tendency to look down upon the things of youth, as the oldest German trade unions had reason to do. Thus the most important general demand of the Russian strike since January 22nd, the eight-hour day, is certainly not an unattainable platform for the German proletariat, but rather in most cases, a beautiful remote ideal. This applies also to the struggle for the, quote, mastery of the household, unquote, platform, to the struggle for the introduction of workers' committees into all the factories, for the abolition of piecework, for the abolition of homework and handicraft, for the complete observance of Sunday rest, and for the recognition of the right of combination. Yes, on closer inspection, all the economic objects of struggle of the Russian proletariat are also for the German proletariat very real, and touch a very sore spot in the life of the workers. It therefore inevitably follows that the pure political mass strike, which operates to one's advantage, is in Germany a mere lifeless theoretical plan. If mass strikes result in a natural way from a strong revolutionary ferment in a determined political struggle of the urban workers, they will equally naturally, exactly as in Russia, change into a whole period of elementary economic struggles. The fears of the trade union leaders, therefore, that the struggle for economic interest in a period of stormy political strife, in a period of mass strikes, can simply be pushed aside and suppressed, rest upon an utterly baseless, schoolboy conception of the course of events. A revolutionary period in Germany would also so alter the character of the trade union struggle and develop its potentialities to such an extent that the present guerrilla warfare of the trade unions would be child's play in comparison. And on the other hand, from this elementary economic tempest of mass strikes, the political struggle would derive always new impetus and fresh strength. The reciprocal action of economic and political struggle, which is the mainspring of present-day strikes in Russia, and at the same time the regulating mechanism, so to speak, of the revolutionary action on the proletariat, would result also in Germany, and quite naturally, from the conditions themselves. Chapter 6. Cooperation of Organized and Unorganized Workers Necessary for Victory in connection with this, the question of organization in relation to the problem of the mass strike in Germany assumes an essentially different aspect. The attitude of many trade union leaders to this question is generally summed up in the assertion, quote, we are not yet strong enough to risk such a hazardous trial of strength as a mass strike, unquote. Now this position is so far untenable that it is an insoluble problem to determine the time, in a peaceful fashion by counting heads, when the proletariat is, quote, strong enough, unquote, for any struggle. Thirty years ago, the German trade unions had 50,000 members. That was obviously a number with which a mass strike on the above scale was not to be thought of. Fifteen years later, the trade unions were four times as strong and counted 237,000 members. If, however, the present trade union leaders had been asked at the time if the organization of the proletariat was insufficiently ripe for a mass strike, they would assuredly have replied that it was still far from it and that the number of those organized in trade unions would first have to be counted by millions. Today, the number of trade unionists already runs into the second million, but the views of the leaders are still exactly the same, and may very well be the same to the end. The tacit assumption is that the entire working class of Germany, down to the last man and last woman, must be included in the organization before it, quote, is strong enough, unquote, to risk a mass action, which then, according to the old formula, would probably be represented as superfluous. This theory is nevertheless absolutely utopian, for the simple reason that it suffers from an internal contradiction that goes in a vicious cycle. Before the workers can engage in any direct class struggle, they must all be organized. The circumstances, the conditions of capitalist development and of the bourgeois state make it impossible that, in the normal course of things, without stormy class struggles, 
Certain sections, and these the greatest, the most important, the lowest and the most oppressed by capital and by the state, can be organized at all. We see even in Britain, which has had a whole century of indefatigable trade union effort without any, quote, disturbances, unquote, except at the beginning in the period of the Chartist movement, without any, quote, romantic revolutionary, unquote, errors or temptations, it has not been possible to do more than organize a minority of the better paid sections of the proletariat. On the other hand, the trade unions, like all fighting organizations of the proletariat, cannot permanently maintain themselves in any other way than by struggle, and not struggles of the same kind as the war between the frogs and the mice in the stagnant waters of the bourgeois parliamentary period, but struggle in the troubled revolutionary periods of the mass strike. The rigid, mechanical bureaucratic conception cannot conceive of the struggle save as the product of organization at a certain stage of its strength. On the contrary, the living, dialectical explanation makes the organization arise as a product of the struggle. We have already seen a grandiose example of this phenomenon in Russia, where a proletariat almost wholly unorganized created a comprehensive network of organizational appendages in a year and a half of stormy revolutionary struggle. Another example of this kind is furnished by the history of the German unions. In 1878, the number of trade union members amounted to 50,000. According to the theory of the present-day trade union leaders, this organization, as stated above, was not nearly, quote, strong enough, unquote, to enter upon a violent political struggle. The German trade unions, however, weak as they were at the time, did take up the struggle, namely the struggle against the anti-socialist laws, and showed that they were, quote, strong enough, unquote, not only to emerge from the struggle victorious, but to increase their strength fivefold. In 1891, after the repeal of the anti-socialist laws, their membership was 277,659. It is true that the methods by which the trade unions conquered in the struggle against the anti-socialist laws do not correspond to the ideal of a peaceful, bee-like, uninterrupted process. They went first into the fight absolutely in ruins, to rise again on the next wave and to be born anew. But this is precisely the specific method of growth corresponding to the proletarian class organizations to be tested in the struggle and to go forth from the struggle with increased strength. On a closer examination of German conditions and of the condition of the different sections of the working class, it is clear that the coming period of stormy political mass struggles will not bring the dreaded, threatening downfall of the German trade unions, but on the contrary, will open up hitherto unsuspected prospects of the extension of their sphere of power, an extension that will proceed rapidly by leaps and bounds. But the question has still another aspect. The plan of undertaking mass strikes as a serious political class action with organized workers only is absolutely hopeless. If the mass strike, or rather mass strikes, and the mass struggle are to be successful, they must become a real people's movement, that is, the widest sections of the proletariat must be drawn into the fight. Already in the parliamentary form, the might of the proletarian class struggles rests not on the small organized group, but on the surrounding periphery of the revolutionary-minded proletariat. If the Social Democrats were to enter the electoral battle with their few hundred thousand organized members alone, they would condemn themselves to futility. And although it is the tendency of social democracy, wherever possible, to draw the whole great army of its voters into the party organization, its mass of voters after 30 years' experience of social democracy is not increased through the growth of the party organization, but on the contrary, the new sections of the proletariat, won for the time being through the electoral struggle, are the fertile soil for the subsequent seeds of organization. Here the organization does not supply the troops for the struggle, but the struggle, to an ever-growing degree, supplies recruits for the organization. In a much greater degree does this obviously apply to direct political mass action than to the parliamentary struggle. If the Social Democrats, as the organized nucleus of the working class, are the most important vanguard of the entire body of the workers, and if the political clarity, the strength, and the unity of the labor movement flow from this organization, then it is not permissible to visualize the class movement of the proletariat as a movement of the organized minority. Every real great class struggle must rest upon the support and cooperation of the widest masses. And a strategy of class struggle that does not reckon with this cooperation, that is based upon the idea of the finely stage-managed march out of the small, well-trained part of the proletariat, is foredoomed to be a miserable fiasco. Mass strikes and political mass struggles cannot, therefore, possibly be carried through in Germany by the organized workers alone, nor can they be appraised by regular, quote, direction, unquote, from the central committee of a party. In this case, again, exactly as in Russia, they depend not so much upon, quote, discipline, unquote, and, quote, training, unquote, and upon the most careful possible regulation beforehand of the questions of support and cost, as upon a real revolutionary determined class action, which will be able to win and draw into the struggle the widest circles of the unorganized workers according to their mood and their conditions.
The overestimate and the false estimate of the role of organizations in the class struggle of the proletariat is generally reinforced by the underestimate of the organized proletarian mass and of their political maturity. In a revolutionary period, in the storm of a great unsettling class struggles, the whole educational effect of the rapid capitalist development and of social democratic influences first shows itself upon the widest sections of the people, of which, in peaceful times, the table of the organized, and even election statistics, give only a faint idea. We have seen that, in Russia, in about two years, a great general action of the proletariat can forthwith arise from the smallest partial conflict of the workers with the employers, from the most insignificant act of brutality of the government organs. Everyone, of course, sees and believes that, because in Russia, the quote, revolution, unquote, is there. But what does that mean? It means that class feeling, the class instinct, is alive and very active in the Russian proletariat, so that immediately they regard every partial question of any small group of workers as a general question, as a class affair, and quick as lightning they react to its influence as a unity. While in Germany, France, Italy, and Holland, the most violent trade union conflicts call forth hardly any general action of the working class, and when they do, only the organized part of the workers moves, in Russia the smallest dispute raises a storm. That means nothing else, however, than at the present, paradoxical as it may sound, the class instinct of the youngest, least trained, badly educated, and still worse organized Russian proletariat is immeasurably stronger than that of the organized, trained, and enlightened working class of Germany or of any other West European country. And that is not to be reckoned a special virtue of the, quote, young, unexhausted East, unquote, as compared with the, quote, sluggish West, unquote, but as simply a result of direct revolutionary mass action. In the case of the enlightened German worker, the class consciousness implanted by the social democrats is theoretical and latent. In the period ruled by bourgeois parliamentarianism, it cannot, as a rule, actively participate in a direct mass action. It is the ideal sum of the 400 parallel actions of the electoral sphere during the election struggle, of the many partial economic strikes and the like. In the revolution, when the masses themselves appear upon the political battlefield, this class consciousness becomes practical and active. A year of revolution has therefore given the Russian proletariat that, quote, training, unquote, that 30 years of parliamentary and trade union struggle cannot artificially give to the German proletariat. Of course, this living, active class feeling of the proletariat will considerably diminish in intensity, or rather change into a concealed and latent condition, after the close of the period of revolution and the erection of a bourgeois parliamentary constitutional state. And just as surely, on the other hand, will the living revolutionary class feeling, capable of action, affect the widest and deepest layers of the proletariat in Germany in a period of strong political engagement, and that the more rapidly and more deeply, more energetically, the educational work of social democracy is carried on among them. This educational work and the provocative and revolutionizing effect of the whole present policy of Germany will express itself in the circumstances that all those groups, which at present, in their apparent political stupidity, remain insensitive to all the organizing attempts of the social democrats and of the trade unions, will suddenly follow the flag of social democracy in a serious revolutionary period. Six months of a revolutionary period will complete the work of the training of these as yet unorganized masses that ten years of public demonstrations and distribution of leaflets would be unable to do. And when conditions in Germany have reached the critical stage for such a period, the sections that are today unorganized and backward will, in the struggle, prove themselves the most radical, the most impetuous element, and not one that will have to be dragged along. If it should come to mass strikes in Germany, it will almost certainly not be the best organized workers, and most certainly not the printers, who will develop the greatest capacity for action, but the worst organized or totally unorganized, the miners, the textile workers, and perhaps even the land workers. In this way, we arrive at the same conclusions in Germany in relation to the peculiar tasks of direction as it relates to the role of social democracy in mass strikes, as in our analysis of events in Russia. If we now leave the pedantic scheme of demonstrative mass strikes artificially brought about by order of parties and trade unions and turn to the living picture of a people's movement arising with elementary energy from the culmination of class antagonisms and the political situation, a movement that passes, politically as well as economically, into mass struggles and mass strikes, it becomes obvious that the task of social democracy does not consist in the technical preparation and direction of mass strikes, but first and foremost in the political leadership of the whole movement. The Social Democrats are the most enlightened, most class-conscious vanguard of the proletariat. They cannot and dare not wait, in a fatalist fashion, with folded arms for the advent of the quote, revolutionary situation, unquote, to wait for that which, in every spontaneous people's movement, falls from the clouds. On the contrary, they must now, as always, hasten the development of things and endeavor to accelerate events. 
This they cannot do, however, by suddenly issuing the quote slogan unquote for a mass strike at random at any odd moment, but first and foremost, by making clear to the widest layers of the proletariat the inevitable advent of this revolutionary period, the inner social factors making for it, and the political consequences of it. If the widest proletarian layer should be one for a political mass action of the social democrats, and if vice versa, the social democrats should seize and maintain the real leadership of a mass movement, should they become, in a political sense, the rulers of the whole movement, then they must, with the utmost clearness, consistency, and resoluteness, inform the German proletariat of their tactics and aims in the period of coming struggle. Chapter 7. The Role of the Mass Strike in the Revolution We have seen that the mass strike in Russia does not represent an artificial product of premeditated tactics on the part of the social democrats, but a natural historical phenomenon on the basis of the present revolution. Now, what are the factors that in Russia have brought forth this new phenomenal form of the revolution? The Russian Revolution has, for its next task, the abolition of absolutism and the establishment of a modern bourgeois parliamentary constitutional state. It is exactly the same in form as that which confronted Germany in the March 1848 revolution and France at the Great French Revolution at the end of the 18th century. But the condition, the historical milieu in which these formerly analogous revolutions took place, are fundamentally different from those of present-day Russia. The most decisive difference is the circumstances that between those bourgeois revolutions of the West and the present bourgeois revolution in the East, the whole cycle of capitalist development has run its course. And this development has seized not only the West European countries, but also absolutist Russia. Large-scale industry with all its consequences, modern class divisions, sharp social contrasts, modern life in large cities, and the modern proletariat, has become in Russia the prevailing form, that is, in social development, the decisive form of production. The remarkable, contradictory historical situation results from this that the bourgeois revolution, in accordance with its formal task, will, in the first place, be carried out by a modern class-conscious proletariat, and in an international milieu whose distinguishing characteristic is the ruin of bourgeois democracy. It is not the bourgeoisie that is now the leading revolutionary element, as in the earlier revolutions of the West, while the proletarian masses, disorganized among the petty bourgeoisie, furnish material for the army of the bourgeoisie, but on the contrary, it is the class-conscious proletariat that is the active and driving element, while the big bourgeois sections are partly directly counter-revolutionary, partly weakly liberal, and only the rural petty bourgeoisie and the urban petty bourgeois intelligentsia are definitively oppositional and even revolutionary-minded. The Russian proletariat, however, who are destined to play the leading part in the bourgeois revolution, enter the fight free from all illusions of bourgeois democracy, with a strongly developed consciousness of their own specific class interests, and at a time when the antagonism between capital and labor has reached its height. This contradictory situation finds expression in the fact that in this formerly bourgeois revolution, the antagonism of bourgeois society to absolutism is governed by the antagonism of the proletariat to bourgeois society, that the struggle of the proletariat is directed simultaneously and with equal energy against both absolutism and capitalist exploitation, and that the program of the revolutionary struggle concentrates with equal emphasis on political freedom, the winning of the eight-hour day, and a human standard of material existence for the proletariat. This twofold character of the Russian Revolution is expressed in that close union of the economic with the political struggle, and in their mutual interaction, which we have seen as a feature of the Russian events and which finds its appropriate expression in the mass strike. In the earlier bourgeois revolutions where, on the one hand, the political training and the leadership of the revolutionary masses were undertaken by bourgeois parties, and where, on the other hand, it was merely a question of overthrowing the old government, the brief battle at the barricades was the appropriate form of the revolutionary struggle. Today, when the working classes are being enlightened in the course of the revolutionary struggle, when they must marshal their forces and lead themselves, and when the revolution is directed as much against the old state power as against capitalist exploitation, the mass strike appears as the natural means of recruiting the widest proletarian layers for the struggle, as well as being at the same time a means of undermining and overthrowing the old state power and of stemming capitalist exploitation. The urban industrial proletariat is now the soul of the revolution in Russia, but in order to carry through a direct political struggle as a mass, the proletariat must first be assembled as a mass, and for this purpose they must come out of the factory and workshop, mine and foundry, must overcome the levigation and the decay to which they are condemned under the daily yoke of capitalism. The mass strike is the first natural, impulsive form of every great revolutionary struggle of the proletariat, and the more highly developed the antagonism is between capital and labor, the more effective and decisive must mass strikes become. The chief form of previous bourgeois revolutions, the fight at the barricades to open conflict with the armed power, 
of the state is in the revolution today only the culminating point, only a moment on the process of the proletarian mass struggle. And therewith, in the new form of the revolution, there has reached that civilizing and mitigating of the class struggle that was prophesied by opportunists of German social democracy, the Bernsteins, Davids, etc. It is true that these men saw the desired civilizing and mitigating of the class struggle in the light of petty bourgeois democratic illusions. They believed that the class struggle would shrink to an exclusively parliamentary contest and that street fighting would simply be done away with. History has found the solution in a deeper and finer fashion, in the advent of revolutionary mass strikes, which of course in no way replaces brutal street fights or renders them unnecessary, but which reduces them to a moment in the long period of political struggle, and which at the same time unites with the revolutionary period an enormous cultural work in the most exact sense of the words. The material and intellectual elevation of the whole working class through the, quote, civilizing, unquote, of the barbaric forms of capitalist exploitation. The mass strike is thus shown to be not a specifically Russian product, springing from absolutism, but a universal form of the proletarian class struggle, resulting from the present stage of capitalist development and class relations. From this standpoint, the three bourgeois revolutions, the Great French Revolution, the German Revolution of March, and the present Russian Revolution, form a continuous chain of development in which the fortunes and the end of the capitalist century are to be seen. In the Great French Revolution, the still wholly underdeveloped internal contradictions of bourgeois society gave scope for a long period of violent struggles, in which all the antagonisms that first germinated and ripened in the heat of the revolution raged unhindered and unrestrained in a spirit of reckless radicalism. A century later, the revolution of the German bourgeoisie, which broke out midway in the development of capitalism, was already hampered on both sides by the antagonism of interests and the equilibrium of strength between capital and labor, and was smothered in a bourgeois feudal compromise and shortened to a brief, miserable episode ending in words. Another half-century, and the present Russian revolution stands at a point of the historical path that is already over the summit, that is on the other side of the culminating point of capitalist society, at which the bourgeois revolution cannot again be smothered by the antagonism between bourgeoisie and proletariat, but will, on the contrary, expand into a new lengthy period of violent social struggles, at which the balancing of account with absolutism appears a trifle in comparison with the many new accounts that the revolution itself opens up. The present revolution realizes in the particular affairs of absolutist Russia the general results of international capitalist development and appears not so much as the last successor of the old bourgeois revolutions as the forerunner of the new series of proletarian revolutions of the West. The most backward country of all, just because it has been so unpardonably late with its bourgeois revolution, shows ways and methods of further class struggle to the proletariat of Germany and the most advanced capitalist countries. Accordingly, it appears, when looked at in this way, to be entirely wrong to regard the Russian Revolution as a fine play, as something specifically, quote, Russian, unquote, and at best to admire the heroism of the fighting men, that is, the last accessories of the struggle. It is much more important that the German workers should learn to look upon the Russian Revolution as their own affair, not merely as a matter of international solidarity with the Russian proletariat, but first and foremost as a chapter of their own social and political history. Those trade union leaders and parliamentarians who regard the German proletariat as, quote, too weak, unquote, and German conditions, quote, as not ripe enough, unquote, for revolutionary mass struggles, have obviously not the least idea that the measure of the degree of ripeness of class relations in Germany and of the power of the proletariat does not lie in the statistics of German trade unionism or in election figures, but in the events of the Russian Revolution. Exactly as the ripeness of French class antagonisms under the July monarchy and the June Battle of Paris was reflected in the German March Revolution, in its course and its fiasco, so today the ripeness of German class antagonisms is reflected in the events and in the power of the Russian Revolution. And while the bureaucrats of the German labor movement rummage in their office drawers for information as to their strength and maturity, they do not see that what they seek is lying before their eyes in a great historical revolution, because... Historically considered, the Russian Revolution is a reflex of the power and the maturity of the international, and therefore in the first place, of the German labor movement. It would therefore be a too pitiable and grotesquely insignificant result of the Russian Revolution if the German proletariat should merely draw from it the lesson, as is desired by comrades Frome, Elm, and others, of using the extreme form of the struggle, the mass strike, and so weaken themselves as to be merely a reserve force in the event of the withdrawal of the parliamentary vote, and therefore a passive means of parliamentary defensive. When the parliamentary vote is taken from us there, we will not resist. This is a self-evident decision. But for this it is not necessary to adopt the heroic pose of a Danton as was done, for example, by Comrade Elman Jenna, 
because the defense of the modest measure of parliamentary right already possessed is a less heaven-storming innovation, for which the frightful hecatombs of the Russian Revolution were first necessary, as a means of encouragement, than the simplest and first duty of every opposition party. But the mere defensive can never exhaust the policy of the proletariat in a period of revolution, and if it is, on the one hand, difficult to predict with any degree of certainty whether the destruction of universal suffrage would cause a situation in Germany that would call forth an immediate mass strike action, so on the other hand, it is absolutely certain that when we in Germany enter upon the period of stormy mass actions, it will be impossible for the social democrats to base their tactics upon a mere parliamentary defensive. To fix beforehand the cause and the moment from and in which the mass strike in Germany will break out is not in the power of social democracy, because it is not in its power to bring about historical situations by resolutions at party congresses. But what it can and must do is to make clear the political tendencies, once they appear, and to formulate them as resolute and consistent tactics. Man cannot keep historical events in check while making recipes for them, but he can see in advance their apparent calculable consequences and arrange his mode of action accordingly. The first threatening political danger with which the German proletariat have concerned themselves for a number of years is a coup d'etat of the reaction that will wrest from the wide masses of the people of the most important political right, universal suffrage. In spite of the immense importance of this possible event, it is, as we have already said, impossible to assert with certainty that an open popular movement would immediately break out after the coup d'etat, because today innumerable circumstances and factors have to be taken into account. But when we consider the present extreme acuteness of conditions in Germany, and on the other hand the manifold international reactions of the Russian Revolution and of the future rejuvenated Russia, it is clear that the collapse of German politics that would ensue from the repeal of universal suffrage could not alone call a halt to the struggle for this right. This coup d'etat would rather draw after it, in a longer or shorter period, and with elementary power, a great general political reckoning of the insurgent and awakened mass of the people, a reckoning with bread usury, with artificially caused dearness of meat, with expenditure on a boundless militarism, and quote, navalism, unquote, with the corruption of colonial policy, with the national disgrace of the Konigsberg trial, with the cessation of social reform, with the discharging of railway workers, the postal officials, and the land workers, with the tricking and mocking of the miners, with the judgment of Lop Tau, and the whole system of class justice, with the brutal lockout system, in short, with the whole 30-year-old oppression of the combined dominion of junkerdom and large trustified capital. But once the ball is set rolling, social democracy, whether it wills it or not, can never again bring it to a standstill. The opponents of the mass strike are in the habit of denying that the lessons and examples of the Russian Revolution can be a criterion for Germany because, in the first place, in Russia the great step first must be taken from an oriental despotism to a modern bourgeois legal order. The formal distance between the old and the new political order is said to be a sufficient explanation of the vehemence and violence of the revolution in Russia. In Germany, we have long had the most necessary forms and guarantees of a constitutional state, from which it follows that such an elementary raging of social antagonisms is impossible here. Those who speculate thus forget that in Germany, when it comes to the outbreak of open political struggles, even the historically determined goal will be quite different from that in Russia today. Precisely because the bourgeois legal order in Germany has existed for a long time, because therefore it has had time to completely exhaust itself, and to draw to an end, because bourgeois democracy and liberalism have had time to die out. Because of this, there can no longer be any talk of a bourgeois revolution in Germany. And therefore, in a period of open political popular struggles in Germany, the last historically necessary goal can only be the dictatorship of the proletariat. The distance, however, of this task from the present conditions of Germany is still greater than that of the bourgeois legal order from oriental despotism, and therefore, the task cannot be completed at one stroke, but must similarly be accomplished during a long period of gigantic social struggles. But is there not a gross contradiction in the picture we have drawn? On the one hand, it means that in an eventual future period of political mass action, the most backward layers of the German proletariat, the land workers, the railway men, and the postal slaves, will first of all win the right of combination, and that the worst excrescences of exploitation must first be removed, and on the other hand, the political task of this period is said to be the conquest of power by the proletariat. On the one hand, economic, trade union struggles for the most immediate interests, for the material elevation of the working class, on the other hand, the ultimate goal of social democracy. Certainly these are great contradictions, but they are not contradictions due to our reasoning, but contradictions due to capital's development. It does not proceed in a beautiful straight line, but in a lightning-like zigzag. Just as the various capitalist countries represent the most varied stages of development, so within each country the different layers of the same working class are represented. 
But history does not wait patiently till the backward countries and the most advanced layers have joined together so that the whole mass can move symmetrically forward like a compact column. It brings the best prepared parts to explosion as soon as the conditions there are ripe for it, and then in the storm of the revolutionary period, lost ground is recovered, unequal things are equalized, and the whole pace of social progress changed at one stroke to the double quick. Just as in the Russian Revolution, all the grades of development and all the interests of the different layers of workers are united in the social democratic program of the revolution, and the innumerable partial struggles united in the great common class action of the proletariat, so will it also be in Germany when the conditions are ripe for it. And the task of social democracy will then be to regulate its tactics, not by the most backward phases of development, but by the most advanced. Chapter 8, Need for United Action of Trade Unions and Social Democracy The most important desideratum that is to be hoped for from the German working class in the period of great struggles that will come sooner or later is, after complete resoluteness and consistency of tactics, the utmost capacity for action, and therefore the utmost possible unity of the leading social democratic part of the proletarian masses. Meanwhile, the first weak attempts at the preparation of great mass actions have discovered a serious drawback in this connection, the total separation and independence of the two organizations of the labor movement, the social democracy and the trade unions. It is clear on a closer consideration of the mass strikes in Russia, as well as of the conditions in Germany itself, that any great mass action, if it is not confined to a mere one-day demonstration, but is intended to be a real fighting action, cannot possibly be thought of as so-called political mass strike. In such an action in Germany, the trade unions would be implicated as much as the social democrats. Not because the trade union leaders imagine that the social democrats, in view of their smaller organization, would have no other resources in the cooperation of one and a quarter million trade unionists, and without them would be unable to do anything, but because of a much more deep-lying motive, because every direct mass action of the period of open-class struggles would be at the same time both political and economic. If in Germany, from any cause and at any time, it should come to great political struggles, to mass strikes, then at that time an era of violent trade union struggles would begin in Germany, and events would not stop to inquire whether the trade union leaders had given their consent to the movement or not. Whether they stand aside or endeavor to resist the movement, the result of their attitude will only be that the trade union leaders, like the party leaders in the analogous case, will simply be swept aside by the rush of events and the economic and the political struggles of the masses will be fought out without them. As a matter of fact, the separation of the political and the economic struggle and the independence of each is nothing but an artificial product of the parliamentarian period, even if historically determined. On the one hand, in the peaceful, quote, normal, unquote, course of bourgeois society, the economic struggle is split into a multitude of individual struggles in every undertaking and dissolved in every branch of production. On the other hand, the political struggle is not directed by the masses themselves in a direct action, but in correspondence with the form of the bourgeois state, in a representative fashion, by the presence of legislative representation. As soon as a period of revolutionary struggles commences, that is, as soon as the masses appear upon the scene of conflict, the breaking up, the economic struggle, as well as the indirect parliamentary form of the political struggle, ceases, in a revolutionary mass action, the political and economic struggle are one, and the artificial boundary between trade union and social democracy is two separate, wholly independent forms of the labor movement is simply swept away. But what finds concrete expression in the revolutionary mass movement finds expression also in the parliamentary period as an actual state of affairs. There are not two different class struggles of the working class, an economic and a political one, but only one class struggle, which aims at one and the same time at the limitation of capitalist exploitation within bourgeois society, and at the abolition of exploitation together with bourgeois society itself. When these two sides of the class struggle are separated from one another for technical reasons in the parliamentary period, they do not form two parallel, concurrent actions, but merely two phases, two stages of the struggle for emancipation of the working class. The trade union struggle embraces the immediate interests and the social democratic struggle the future interests of the labor movement. The communists, says the Communist Manifesto, represent, as against various group interests, national or local, as a whole of the proletariat, and in the various stages of development of the class struggle, the interests of the whole movement, that is, the ultimate goal, the liberation of the proletariat. The trade unions represent only the group interests in only one stage of development of the labor movement. Social democracy represents the working class and the cause of its liberation as a whole. The relation of the trade unions to social democracy is therefore a part of the whole, and when, among the trade union leaders, the theory of, quote, equal authority, unquote, of trade unions and social democracy finds so much favor, 
It rests upon a fundamental misconception of the essence of trade unionism itself and of its role in the general struggle for the freedom of the working class. This theory of the parallel action of social democracy in the trade unions and their, quote, equal authority, unquote, is nevertheless not altogether without foundation, but has its historical roots. It rests upon the illusion of the peaceful, quote, normal, unquote, period of bourgeois society in which the political struggle of social democracy appears to be consumed in the parliamentary struggle. Parliamentary struggle, however, the counterpart of the trade union struggle, is equally with it a fight conducted exclusively on the basis of the bourgeois social order. It is by its very nature political reform work, as that of the trade unions is economic reform work. It represents political work for the present, as trade unions represent economic work for the present. It is, like them, merely a phase, a stage of development in the complete process of the proletarian class struggle, whose ultimate goal is as far beyond the parliamentary struggle as it is beyond the trade union struggle. The parliamentary struggle is, in relation to social democratic policy, also a part of the whole, exactly as trade union work is. Social democracy today comprises the parliamentary and the trade union struggle in one class struggle, aiming at the abolition of the bourgeois social order. The theory of the, quote, equal authority, unquote, of trade unions and social democracy is likewise not a mere theoretical misunderstanding, not a mere case of confusion, but an expression of the well-known tendency of that opportunist wing of social democracy that reduces the political struggle of the working class to the parliamentary contest and desires to change social democracy from a revolutionary proletarian party into a petty bourgeois reform one. If social democracy should accept the theory of the equal authority of the trade unions, it would thereby accept, indirectly and tacitly, the transformation which has long been striven for by the representatives of the opportunist tendency. In Germany, however, there is such a shifting of relations within the labor movement as is impossible in any other country. The theoretical conception, according to which the trade unions are merely a part of social democracy, finds its classic expression in Germany in fact, in actual practice, and that in three directions. First, the German trade unions are a direct product of social democracy. It was social democracy that created the beginnings of the present trade union movement in Germany, and that enabled it to attain such great dimensions and it is social democracy that supplies it to this day with its leaders and the most active promoters of its organization. Second, the German trade unions are a product of social democracy also in the sense that social democratic teaching is the soul of trade union practice, as the trade unions owe their superiority over all bourgeois and denominational trade unions to the idea of the class struggle. Their practical success, their power, is a result of the circumstance that their practice is illuminated by the theory of scientific socialism, and they are thereby raised above the level of a narrow-minded socialism. The strength of the, quote, practical policy, unquote, of the German trade unions lies in their insight into the deeper social and economic connections of the capitalist system. But they owe this insight entirely to the theory of scientific socialism upon which their practice is based. Viewed in this way, any attempt to emancipate the trade unions from the social democratic theory in favor of some other, quote, trade union theory, unquote, opposed to social democracy is, from the standpoint of the trade unions themselves and of their future, nothing but an attempt to commit suicide. The separation of trade union practice from the theory of scientific socialism would mean to the German trade unions the immediate loss of all their superiority over all kinds of bourgeois trade unions, and their fall from their present height to the level of unsteady groping and mere dull empiricism. Thirdly and finally, the trade unions are, although their leaders have gradually lost sight of the fact, even as regards their numerical strength, a direct product of the social democratic movement and the social democratic agitation. It is true that in many districts, trade union agitation precedes social democratic agitation, and that everywhere, trade union work prepares the way for party work. From the point of view of effect, party and trade unions assist each other to the fullest extent, but when the picture of the class struggle in Germany is looked at as a whole, and its more deep-seated associations, the proportions are considerably altered. Many trade union leaders are in the habit of looking down triumphantly from the proud height of their membership of one and a quarter million on the miserable organized members of the Social Democratic Party, not yet half a million strong, and of recalling the time 10 or 12 years ago when those in the ranks of social democracy were pessimistic as to the prospects of trade union development. They do not see that between these two things, the large number of organized trade unionists and the small number of organized social democrats, there exists in a certain degree a direct casual connection. Thousands and thousands of workers do not join the party organizations precisely because they join the trade unions. According to the theory, all the workers must be doubly organized, must attend two kinds of meetings, pay double contributions, 
read two kinds of workers' papers, etc. But for this it is necessary to have a higher standard of intelligence than that of idealism, which, from a pure feeling of duty to the labor movement, is prepared for the daily sacrifice of time and money, and finally, a higher standard of that passionate interest in the actual life of the party that can only be engendered by membership of the party organization. All this is true of the most enlightened and intelligent minority of social democratic workers in the large towns, where party life is full and attractive, and where the workers' standard of living is high. Among the wider sections of the working masses in the large towns, however, as well as in the provinces, in the smaller and the smallest towns where political life is not an independent thing but a mere reflex of the course of events in the capital, where consequently party life is poor and monotonous, and where, finally, the economic standard of the life of the workers is, for the most part, miserable, it is very difficult to secure the double form of organization. For the social democratically minded worker from the masses, the question will be solved by his joining his trade union. The immediate interest of his economic struggle that are conditioned by the nature of the struggle itself cannot be advanced in any other way than by membership in a trade union organization. The contribution that he pays, often amid considerable sacrifice of his standard of living, brings him immediate, visible results. His social democratic inclinations, however, enable him to participate in various kinds of work without belonging to a special party organization, by voting at parliamentary elections, by attendance at social democratic public meetings, by following the reports of social democratic speeches in representative bodies, and by reading the party press. Comparing this connection, the number of social democratic electors or the number of subscribers to Vorwarts with the number of organized party members in Berlin. And what is most decisive, the social democratically minded average worker who, as a simple man, can have no understanding of the intricate and fine so-called two-soul theory, feels that he is, even in the trade union, socially democratically organized. Although the central committees of the unions have no official party label, the workman from the masses in every city and town sees at the head of his trade union as the most active leaders, those colleagues whom he knows also as comrades and social democrats in public life, now at Reichstag, Landtag, or local representatives, now as trusted men of the social democracy, members of election committees, party editors and secretaries, or merely as speakers and agitators. Further, he hears expressed in the agitational work of his trade union much the same ideas, pleasing and intelligible to him, of capitalist exploitation, class relations, etc., as those that have come to him from social democratic agitation. Indeed, the most and best loved of the speakers at trade union meetings are those same social democrats. Thus, everything combines to give the average class-conscious worker the feeling that he, in being organized in his trade union, is also a member of his labor party and is socially democratically organized. And therein lies the peculiar recruiting strength of the German trade unions. Not because of the appearance of neutrality, but because of the social democratic reality of their being, have the central unions been enabled to attain their present strength. This is simply through the coexistence of the various unions, Catholic, Hirschdunker, etc., founded by bourgeois parties by which it was sought to establish the necessity for that political, quote, neutrality, unquote. When the German worker who has full freedom of choice to attach himself to a Christian, Catholic, evangelical, or free-thinking trade union chooses none of these but the, quote, free trade union, unquote, instead, or leaves one of the former to join the latter, he does so only because he considers that the central unions are the avowed organizations of the modern class struggle, or, what is the same thing in Germany, that they are social democratic trade unions. In a word, the appearance of, quote, neutrality, unquote, which exists in the minds of many trade union leaders, does not exist for the mass of organized trade unionists. And that is the good fortune of the trade union movement. If the appearance of, quote, neutrality, unquote, that alienation and separation of the trade unions from social democracy, really and truly becomes a reality in the eyes of the proletarian masses, then the trade unions would immediately lose all their advantages over competing bourgeois unions, and therewith their recruiting power, their living fire. This is conclusively proved by facts that are generally known. The appearance of party political quote neutrality unquote of the trade unions could, as a means of attraction, render inestimable service in a country in which social democracy itself has no credit among the masses, in which the odium attaching a workers' organization injures it, in the eyes of the masses, rather than advantages it, where, in a word, the trade unions must first of all recruit their troops from a wholly unenlightened, bourgeois-minded mass. The best example of such a country was, throughout the whole of the last century and is to a certain extent today, Great Britain. In Germany, however, party relations are altogether different. 
In a country in which social democracy is the most powerful political party, in which its recruiting power is represented by an army of over 3 million proletarians, it is ridiculous to speak of the deterrent effect of social democracy and of the necessity for a fighting organization of the workers to ensure political neutrality. The mere comparison of the figures of social democratic voters with the figures of the trade union organizations in Germany is sufficient to prove to the most simple-minded that the trade unions in Germany do not, as in England, draw their troops from the unenlightened bourgeois-minded mass, but from the mass of proletarians already aroused by the social democracy and won by it to the idea of the class struggle. Many trade union leaders indignantly reject the idea, a requisite of the, quote, theory of neutrality, unquote, and regard the trade unions as a recruiting school for social democracy. This is apparently insulting, but in reality, highly flattering presumption is in Germany reduced to a mere fancy by the circumstance that the positions are reversed. It is the social democracy that is the recruiting school for the trade unions. Moreover, if the organizational work of the trade unions is for the most part of a very difficult and troublesome kind, it is, with the exception of a few cases in some districts, not merely because on the whole, the soil has not been prepared by the social democratic plow, but also because the trade union seat itself, and the sower as well, must also be red, social democratic, before the harvest can prosper. But when we compare in this way the figures of trade union strength, not with those of the social democratic organizations, but, which is the only correct way, with those of the mass of social democratic voters, we come to a conclusion that differs considerably from the current view of the matter. The fact then comes to light that the, quote, free trade unions, unquote, actually represent today but a minority of the class-conscious workers of Germany, that even with their one and a quarter million organized members, they have not yet been able to draw into their ranks one half of those already aroused by social democracy. The most important conclusion to be drawn from the facts cited above is that the complete unity of the trade union and the social democratic movements, which is absolutely necessary for the coming mass struggles, in Germany is actually here, and that it is incorporated in the wide mass that forms the basis at once of social democracy and trade unionism, and in whole consciousness both parts of the movement are mingled in a mental unity. The alleged antagonism between social democracy and trade unions shrinks to an antagonism between social democracy and a certain part of the trade union officials, which is, however, at the same time, an antagonism within the trade unions between this part of the trade union leaders and the proletarian mass organized in trade unions. The rapid growth of the trade union movement in Germany in the course of the last 15 years, especially in the period of great economic prosperity from 1895 to 1900, has brought with it a great independence of the trade unions, a specializing of their methods of struggle, and finally the introduction of a regular trade union officialdom. All these phenomena are quite understandable and natural historical products of the growth of the trade unions in this 15-year period, and of the economic prosperity and political calm of Germany. They are, although inseparable from certain drawbacks, without doubt a historically necessary evil. But the dialectics of development also brings with it the circumstance that these necessary means of promoting trade union growth become, on the contrary, obstacles to its further development at a certain stage of organization and at a certain degree of ripeness of conditions. The specialization of professional activity as trade union leaders, as well as the naturally restricted horizon that is bound up with disconnected economic struggles in a peaceful period, leads only too easily, among trade union officials, to bureaucratism and a certain narrowness of outlook. Both, however, express themselves in a whole series of tendencies that may be fateful in the highest degree for the future of the trade union movement. There is first of all the overvaluation of the organization, which from a means has gradually been changed into an end in itself, a precious thing, to which the interests of the struggle should be subordinated. From this also comes that openly admitted need for peace, which shrinks from great risks and presumed dangers to the stability of the trade unions, and further, the overvaluation of the trade union method of struggle itself, its prospects, and its successes. The trade union leaders, constantly absorbed in the economic guerrilla war whose plausible task it is to make the workers' place, the highest value on the smallest economic achievement, every increase in wages and shortening of the working day, gradually lose the power of seeing the larger connections and of taking a survey of the whole position. Only in this way can one explain why many trade union leaders refer with the greatest satisfaction to the achievements of the last 15 years instead of, on the contrary, emphasizing the other side of the medal, the simultaneous and immense reduction of the proletarian standard of life by land usury, by the whole tax and customs policy, by landlord rapacity, which has increased house rents to such an exorbitant extent, in short, 
by all the objective tendencies of bourgeois policy that have largely neutralized the advantages of the 15 years of trade union struggle. From the whole social democratic truth, which, while emphasizing the importance of the present work and its absolute necessity, attaches the chief importance to the criticism and the limits to this work. The half-trade union truth is taken that emphasizes only the positive side of the daily struggle. And finally, from the concealment of the objective limits drawn by the bourgeois social order to the trade union struggle, there arises a hostility to every theoretical criticism that refers to these limits in connection with the ultimate aims of the labor movement. Fulsome flattery and boundless optimism are considered to be the duty of every, quote, friend of the trade union movement, unquote. But as the social democratic standpoint consists precisely in fighting against uncritical trade union optimism, as in fighting against uncritical parliamentary optimism, a front is at last made against the social democratic theory. Men grope for a, quote, new trade union theory, unquote, a theory that would open up an illimitable vista of economic progress to the trade union struggle within the capitalist system in opposition to the social democratic doctrine. Such a theory has indeed existed for some time, the theory of Professor Sombart, which was promulgated with the express intention of driving a wedge between the trade unions and the social democracy in Germany and of enticing the trade unions over to the bourgeois position. In close connection with these theoretical tendencies is a revolution in the relations of leaders and rank and file. In place of the direction by colleagues through local committees, with their admitted inadequacy, there appears to be the business-like direction of the trade union officials. The initiative and the power of making decisions, thereby devolve upon trade union specialists, so to speak, and the more passive virtue of discipline upon the mass of members. This dark side of officialdom also assuredly conceals considerable dangers for the party, as from the latest innovation, the institution of local party secretaries, it can quite easily result, if the social democratic mass is not careful, that these sectariats may remain mere organs for carrying out decisions and not be regarded in any way the appointed bearers of the initiative and of the direction of local party life. But by nature of the case, by the character of the political struggle, there are narrow bounds drawn to bureaucratism and social democracy as in trade union life. But here the technical specializing of wage struggles as, for example, the conclusion of intricate tariff agreements and the like, frequently means that the mass of organized workers are prohibited from taking a, quote, survey of the whole industrial life, unquote, and their incapacity for taking decisions is thereby established. A consequence of this conception is the argument with which every theoretical criticism of the prospects and possibilities of trade union practices tabooed, and which alleges that it represents a danger to the pious trade union sentiment of the masses. From this, the point of view has been developed that it is only by blind, childlike faith in the efficacy of the trade union struggle that the working masses can be won and held for the organization. In contradistinction to social democracy, which bases its influence on the unity of the masses amid the contradictions of the existing order, and in the complicated character of its development, and on the critical attitude of the masses to all factors and stages of their own class struggle, the influence and the power of the trade unions are founded upon the upside-down theory of the incapacity of the masses for criticism and decision. Quote, the faith of the people must be maintained, unquote. This is the fundamental principle, acting upon which many trade union officials stamp as attempts on the life of this movement, all criticisms of the objective inadequacy of trade unionism. And finally, a result of all this specialization and this bureaucratism among trade union officials is the great independence and the, quote, neutrality, unquote, of the trade unions in relation to social democracy. The extreme independence of the trade union organization is a natural result of its growth, as a relation that has grown out of the technical division of work between the political and the trade union forms of struggle. The, quote, neutrality, unquote, of the German trade unions, on its part, arose as a product of the reactionary trade union legislation of the Prusso-German police state. With time, both aspects of their nature have altered, from the condition of political, quote, neutrality, unquote, of the trade unions imposed by the police, a theory of their voluntary neutrality has been evolved as a necessity founded upon the alleged nature of the trade union struggle itself. And the technical independence of the trade unions, which should rest upon the division of work in the unified social democratic class struggle, the separation of the trade unions from social democracy, from its views and its leadership, has been changed into the so-called equal authority of trade unions and social democracy. The appearance of separation and equality of trade unions and social democracy is, however, incorporated chiefly in the trade union officials and strengthened through the managing apparatus of the trade unions. Outwardly, by the coexistence of a complete staff of trade union officials, of a wholly independent central committee, 
of numerous professional press, and finally of Trade Union Congress, the illusion is created of an exact parallel with the managing apparatus of the social democracy, the party executive, the party press, and the party conference. This illusion of equality between social democracy and the trade union had led to, among other things, the monstrous spectacle that, in part, quite analogous agendas are discussed at social democratic conferences and trade union congresses, and that on the same questions different and even diametrically opposite decisions are taken. From the natural division of work between the party conference, which represents the general interests and tasks of the labor movement, and the trade union congress, which deals with the much narrower sphere of social questions and interests, the artificial division has been made of a pretended trade union and a social democratic outlook in relation to the same general questions and interests of the labor movement. Thus the peculiar position has arisen that this same trade union movement, which below, in the wide proletarian masses, is absolutely one with social democracy, parts abruptly from it above in the superstructure of management, and sets itself up as an independent great power. The German labor movement therefore assumes the peculiar form of a double pyramid whose base and body consist of one solid mass, but whose apices are wide apart. It is clear from this presentation of the case in what way alone, in a natural and successful manner, that compact unity of the German labor movement can be attained, which, in the view of the coming political class struggles and of the peculiar interests of the further development of the trade unions, is indispensably necessary. Nothing could be more perverse or more hopeless than to desire to attain the unity desired by means of sporadic and periodical negotiations on individual questions affecting the labor movement between the Social Democratic Party leadership and the trade union central committees. It is just the highest circles of both forms of the labor movement, which as we have seen, incorporate their separation and self-sufficiency, that are themselves, therefore, the promoters of the illusion of the quote equal authority unquote, and of the parallel existence of social democracy and trade unionism. To desire the unity of these through the union of the party executive and the general commission is to desire to build a bridge at the very spot where the distance is greatest and the crossing most difficult. Not above, among the heads of the leading directing organizations and in their federative alliance, but below, among the organized proletarian masses, lies the guarantee of the real unity of the labor movement. In the consciousness of the million trade unionists, the party and the trade unions are actually one. They represent in different forms the social democratic struggle for the emancipation of the proletariat, and the necessity automatically arises therefrom of removing any causes of friction that have been arisen between the social democracy and a part of the trade unions of adapting their mutual relation to the consciousness of the proletarian masses, that is, of rejoining the trade unions to social democracy. The synthesis of the real development that led from the original incorporation of the trade unions to their separation from social democracy will thereby be expressed and the way will be prepared for the coming period of great proletarian mass struggles during the period of vigorous growth of both trade unions and social democracy, and their reunion in the interests of both will become a necessity. It is not, of course, a question of the merging of the trade union organization and the party, but of the restoration of the unity of social democracy and the trade unions, which corresponds to the actual relation between the labor movement as a whole and its partial trade union expression. Such a revolution will inevitably call forth a vigorous opposition from a part of the trade union leadership. But it is high time for the working masses of social democracy to learn how to express their capacity for decision and action, and therewith to demonstrate their ripeness for that time of great struggles and great tasks in which they, the masses, will be the actual chorus and the directing bodies will merely act as the quote, speaking parts, unquote, that is, will only be the interpreters of the will of the masses. The trade union movement is not that which is reflected in the quite understandable but irrational illusion of a minority of the trade union leaders, but that which lives in the consciousness of the mass of proletarians who have been won for the class struggle. In the consciousness, the trade union movement is part of social democracy. Quote, but let her dare to seem the thing she is, unquote. 